Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, shalom. How are you? Good to see everybody. Shalom. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Great, great, great. So it's just so good to see everybody. Um, there's so much to talk about this week. I've really struggled with this fellowship because there's so many ideas and they all converge together in one beautiful truth. So I'm trying to sift it all through and hopefully we can do that together because there's just so much to discuss and I want to dive right in, um, which I feel comfortable doing uh, because the sooner we start, the more time we will have to open up and hear from all of you because yes, I've gotten the go ahead for a long overdue fellowship connection immediately following this fellowship. When these fellowship connections happen, I just love them. I love seeing your faces and hearing your voices and interacting with you. It reminds me of that time we had the the fellowship retreat here at the farm. That was so special. I hope we do that again soon. But anyways, during this fellowship, please keep your hearts open. Uh, there's nothing that is out of bounds. There's nothing you can't say. There's nothing you can't ask. We would love to hear from you. Sometimes people have what that they want to share, and other times they don't. We've done a fellowship connection. We had one thing, and that's okay. This is one of those maximum invitation, minimum pressure situations. We just love to hear from you if you have the desire to speak and to share. Anyways, this week's portion I've always found to be among the most pivotal and consequential portions in the entire Torah. If such a thing could be said, if you can play favorites, which I don't know that you can, because I believe that this portion has within it the divine wisdom that we need to rise to the greatest calling of our generation and finally do our part to usher in the times of the redemption. And I think this is true on so many levels all at once, which is why I struggled so much with this fellowship and I'm still struggling with it because it, on the personal level, on the universal level, on the national level, it all really comes together. So um, this portion has within it, what is it? The sin of the spies. And each successive year that I immerse myself in this portion, I have to confess, I feel tremendous compassion for the spies. Each year I feel more empathy as I become increasingly more acquainted with that voice of the spies that I too have within my own heart. Now, having said that, I'd still like to believe, I still do believe that I would have been like Caleb and Joshua in that situation. But I see more and more, you know, how great and monumental that challenge was for them and for all of the spies. For until this very day, you can ask Jeremy, there's nothing that torments me more than the fact that I don't feel like I am rising to the occasion and blowing the shofar enough for the nation of Israel to come home. It's a hard thing to do. You know, it can brand you as an extremist, as an aliyah bully. You know, aliyahs like to ascend to move to the land of Israel. There's actually a term being thrown around in the Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish world today called an Aliyah bully, referring to people like I me. I think it's not just being thrown around, Ari. I think it's being thrown at you. That's why it's hard to be that person because right. they call you an Aliyah bully. You have to deal with that now, but you got to speak the truth. I guess so. I always try to think of the right way to do it, the, the, the effective way to do it, not just saying necessarily what I see or what I want to say, but what will touch people's hearts. But no matter how you do it, no matter how you do it, you know, I remember the, there was a, a flood in Houston. You remember that story? And I had I posted this meme that said, you know, underwater, consider moving to Israel. And people are so mad. How could you? 
use this opportunity of a flood. If I said underwater, move to Nashville, nobody would have thought twice. There's something about the call to return home that strikes a nerve that is a difficult one. And you and I talk about this regularly. But, um, but you know, the pressure that the spies felt was very, very real. And there isn't one of us who hasn't faced that same type of pressure that they faced millennia ago. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot of pressure to conform, whether it be vaccines. I'm not getting into the vaccine right now, but you know what I'm talking about. The LGBTQI plus minus two plus whatever agenda and standing up against that, you know, they, that can brand you a blankophobe or whatever. You know, the land of Israel, the Palestinian situation, there's so there's tremendous pressure to conform. And the price for not doing so, even today, can be anything from losing your jobs, losing your friends, or even losing your life. You know, and that goes all the way back to the Torah portion where we saw that they were the nation was prepared to stone to death Caleb and, and Joshua for standing true. And I think they knew that was coming. But uh, but let's try to be clear here. Jeremy, you're coming up soon. What was their sin exactly? Well, the Torah portion does say it, you know, in different places. Psalm 106.24 really summarizes the depth of their sins in the most concise way that I could find. Here's what it says. V'yimasu ba'eretz tamda lo ha'minu bidvaro. They despised the desirable land. V'yimasu. They des despised it. The desirable land. They did not believe his word. They murmured in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. So there are two sins here, two primary sins. One was despising the land that they were supposed to love. And the other was murmuring. In other words, slandering the land that they were supposed to praise. Those are the two sins that these great men of Israel committed. All of them, but Caleb and Joshua, right? And what made Caleb and Joshua different? What gave them the courage to stand apart? That is one question that I want to address in this fellowship, that I want to make sure that I get to here. And the other question is what made this challenge so extraordinarily difficult? You know, it doesn't seem like it would be. There's so much buildup, so much lead up, the land of Israel for generations they've been praying through. It's pretty easy, it would seem. What made it so extraordinary? So before we dive in, and try to get to the bottom of these questions. Let's first hear from our beloved Jeremy Gimpel, followed by Tehila Gimpel. And we had a very special Shabbat together. Uh, we had friends over, we shared meals, which I always love to do. Shane and I love that it's such an opportunity. It's great to have friends like that, that you don't get tired of, that you still get excited about hanging out with. That's Jeremy and Tehila for us. But anyways, we, we were discussing and debating about the Torah portion around the table. I went head-to-head -head debating with Tehillah, which is an intimidating prospect. Immediately, I freeze up and I start being like, I'm going to do this. I'm not, she's bread in my hands. But I, I just can't, she's, she's very intimidating. But anyways, I'm really interested to hear where Jeremy's coming from. Tehillah, I want to hear from you. Jeremy, we're excited to see you. Go ahead. Well, talking about Tehillah, I want to tell you all a funny story. We wake up in the morning and this, you know, this happened a while ago. It didn't just happen yesterday. It happened, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago. And I was waiting for the right time to tell the story because to me, it is just so telling. I wake up in the morning and Teal wakes up and I see she's already upset with me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I just woke up. How, what, how could this possibly be? 
And she tells me that she had a dream and I'm in the dream and in the dream, I upset her. And so now she's upset with me. And I'm like, what? You can't, that's not fair. You can't be mad at me for something that I didn't do because you dreamt it in your dream. Like that is just totally unjust. And she's like, well, you know, we were on vacation and I was packing up the bags and you were downstairs and just talking to your brother. Yep, 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 yep. And I'm alone packing the bags. And then I'm, I'm, I engage. Because that's something you would do. Well, I engaged with it. And I said, she's well, mad Tehillah, at you because you know, that's a nonfiction dream. <laughs> well, I said, Tehillah, Sorry, I don't ahead. understand. Why, did, why, didn't you, uh, why didn't you come down and, and just talk with me and my brother? He loves you so much. You would have made the conversation so much more interesting. And she's like, well, we were going to miss a, the flight. And I'm like, miss the flight. Why am I even talking about this dream as if I've done something wrong? <laughs> it's a dream. <laughs> there was no flight. There was no conversation. But Tehillah is treating me as if we had gone through this whole process and I had somehow <laughs> wasn't lifting my weight in the packing of the family. And I, to me, it reminded me so much of the Torah that I want to share now, because sometimes we think that we might be doing something right. And it's something, the, it's just the exact opposite. I woke up in such a good mood, expecting to just be happy-go-lucky, do-do-do-do-do. And out of nowhere, obviously some sort of subconscious manifestation, maybe what Ari's saying, maybe that is typical behavior. Maybe I'm kind of, you know, they say that men are hunters. And hunters, you know, they, they had to like look through the bow and arrow. They had to like peer down the, the uh, you know, the, the rifle. And so men are very much like singularly focused so if I'm in the middle of a conversation, it's hard for me to also think about packing the bags and doing the dishes. And, or if I'm doing the dishes, don't talk to me because I'm doing the dishes now. And so like, that's just the way it is. But sometimes that singular focus sort of doesn't allow us to see the big picture. And so I want to address Ari's question. The question is, what exactly was the sin of the spies? And so this year, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to attack it from a different angle. I'm not going to say the two things that Ari said. It wasn't about their complaining, and it wasn't only about their kind of refusing or being disgusted with the land or just being fed up with the land. There was something deeper that was happening here. So the people that were chosen, it says they, they were of a very high spiritual caliber. They weren't just regular people. These were the leaders in their character, in their they were the leaders of Israel. Each tribe sort of elected their own representation. These weren't just simple people. And when they came back, there is an idea that their argument was a very spiritual argument. And the Midrash says that when they came back, they said, listen, we don't really want to go into the land of Israel. If we go into the land of Israel, we're going to have to work the land. We're going to have to fight all these enemies. We're going to have to till the soil, harvest the thing. Right now, we can just keep the Torah. We can just learn the Torah. We are in the clouds of glory here. We are just receiving manna from heaven. Why would we want to leave that and then have to go into the land? We'll be so distracted with conquering the land and building a country and doing all that needs to be done. Much better that we just stay in the clouds of glory here in the desert. It will be a spiritual descent if we go into the land of Israel. That's what the Midrash says. And I think that that's a very unique kind of reading of the of the of the scripture because that's i mean the shot really leads towards what ari was saying but you know you want to take the midrash and you're like well what are the sages of israel teaching us here in that story what is that paradigm because when you look at israel it's shocking they come out of slavery and god says i want to give you the torah and israel says we will do it and then we'll listen and then we'll understand 
we're committed. We're going to do it. And then God says, well, it's, we want to go into the land of Israel. I would have expected them to say, Na'asevanishma, we're going to do it. Don't even show us. We don't need to send people into the land. God, if you're telling us to go into the land, we're going to go into the land. We, we believe you. If it's a good land, you said it's good, it's good, we're going to go. They don't do that though. And it seems like out of character, because on one hand, they were so committed to God that they would say, we're going to do whatever you tell us to do, God. We don't know what's in the Torah. You want us to wear fringes on the ends of our corners? You want us to wear funny furry hats? Whatever you want us to do, we're going to do it. But then when it comes to Israel, why don't they have that same fervor? What's changed? Or did they have that same fervor? And maybe that's the lesson. And so maybe what happened here is that the spies, the nation of Israel, the leaders, the spiritual leadership of Israel sort of lost their direction. And how did they lose their direction? They said, well, listen, we have a religion now. We have this Judaism thing. We have this Torah life that we have to live. And if you take us into the land of Israel, the religion, we won't be able to live the religion as, as good as we're living it here. Here in the desert, it's perfect. We can learn Torah all day. We can eat absolutely kosher manna from heaven. We have all of the religion that we, you gave us the Torah. We are able to live the Torah out in the most pristine way here. This is the best way we can live out our religion. And then that was the gravest sin because Judaism isn't a religion. The Torah was never meant to be a religion. We have a mission in the world. We have a mandate. We have a mandate to be a light unto the nations. We have a mission of tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai, to fix this world through the kingdom of God. We have a mission to build God's kingdom on earth. We have a mission to build up a country that will be a light to all nations. And the people of Israel, the leadership, the spiritual leadership, lost the vision of the mission. And then they started worshiping the religion because they were like, we will do and then we will understand. We are committed to the Torah. We are committed to Judaism. We want to fulfill the commandments as best as we possibly can. And this religion, actually, if we go into the land of Israel, it's going to take away from the Torah. It's going to take away from our time of study. It's going to take away from our level of kashrut because manna is the ultimate kosher food. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Shemitah. Maybe the kosher. Maybe the animal. Maybe this. Maybe that. Here we are in a pristine opportunity, a, an op, a place that we can fulfill our religion as best as possible. And it was there that the spiritual leadership actually led the people of Israel in the wrong direction by making them be obsessed, compelled by the religion and not by the mission of Israel. There's a religion and then there's the mission. Israel is not a religion. Israel was gifted with a mission. The Torah is the vehicle through which we accomplish our mission. But once we start to worship the Torah as a means and an end of itself, it's arguable to say that that's actually idolatry, that you're worshiping the Torah and not worshiping God, that you're worshiping a religion and not actually what the Torah is pointing us to. And that was the gravest of all sins. And then it says, okay, you've lost, you've lost the vision of the mission. Well, what did they complain about? They said, we don't want to go into the land of Israel. So God said, fine. I don't really see it so much as a punishment as you, you, you get what you ask for. You don't want, you want to, you want to live in a religion here, live out your religion in the desert, and then you're going to die. And hopefully the next generation will grow up with the vision that Joshua and Caleb will bring them forward into the land with. And so I think that that speaks to us very powerfully in this generation. I would say that among believers in the world, the thing that divides 
people the most is a lack of a unified vision and arguing about the religion. And so right now, this is the calling of our generation in so many ways, is to rally the troops behind the calling of Israel, that we have a mission to build a country, we have a mission to build a kingdom, it's in the land of Israel, and everyone should be unified like one organism working to build that vision on earth. And the Torah as a religion is there to help us become who we were created to be, to help us build the kingdom in the best way possible, but to never get lost in the religion itself as the ends. It's just a means toward the ends. And that I think is the sin that many of us in this final generation have fallen right back into. And so maybe we take a little bit of inspiration, not only to love the land of Israel, but to remember the mission of Israel. And that can only be accomplished through the land. And so that's what I took away this week. And I hope that um, you should all be blessed with Shalom Bait. And if you wake up in the morning and you're annoyed at your husband or wife because of a dream that you had, remember, it's not their fault. They love you. <laughs> and so have a wonderful week, my friends. Talk to you soon. Okay, one second. Can you hear me now? Okay, good. Yeah, so I think that's very true, Jeremy. You know, mission-oriented, staying focused and understanding you can't hear me or you can. Jeremy, you're signing to me as if something you can't hear me. They can hear me. That's the important part. But yes, you're right. Maybe you're not coming in so loud. Focused. Maybe that's just me. Can you guys hear me? Am I loud enough? You think this is, a, yeah, I'm loud enough. So you should raise your volume. Anyways, that was beautiful, Jeremy. And yes, I agree with you 100%. Only within the land of Israel can we accomplish our national mission. And really, only within the land of Israel can we accomplish the deepest purpose behind which Hashem was motivated to create the entire world. If we could understand such a thing, it is only in the land of Israel that we can fully manifest that deepest desire. And that may sound abstract and mystical to you, but we'll get into that soon. But anyways, before I go on, let me introduce Tehila and hear what she has to say. Shalom Tehila. Hey everybody. So this week's portion was so rich and so much to talk about, but I want to jump right over it, straight to the Haftorah, where we have a section from the prophets relating to the Torah portion. So if in this week's portion we read the story about Moshe sending out the spies to check out the land of Israel, in the Haftorah we read about Joshua sending out spies to Jericho, and we hear the moving story of Rahab saving the spies, or as she's called in the English Bible, Rahab. To be honest, I grew up in Jewish education. We didn't talk about Rahab that much. We learned the story when we read the book of Joshua, but she's not like one of the great heroines that we talk about. You know, and there's a Midrash in Yalkut Shimoni that lists the righteous female converts in the Bible. Osnat, the wife of Joseph, Zipporah, the wife of Moshe, Ruth, and many others. And in that list is, of course, Rahab. But yet, she's like, I know so many people named Zipporah, Ruth, uh, Yael. I've never met a Rahab. So her character is largely overlooked, even though she was an amazing savior who saved Jewish lives at great risk to herself. I imagine it's because her profession wasn't so savory and it's not like something we want to really talk about with our children. But on the other hand, she did so much. So I want to give her a little bit of attention. And you know, when I was reading the story of Rahab, 
what jumps out at me about her story is how much it reminds me of the righteous among the nations during the Holocaust. Like you imagine these government official, officials going from door to door in Jericho looking for the Jews and she has them stowed away and she's like wondering, are they going to find them? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to kill all of us? And, you know, an interesting thing that not everyone knows is that more than half, the majority of people recognized as righteous among the nations during the Holocaust by Yad Vashem were women, which is so surprising. Like I've heard so many stories of women heroically saving Jews during the Holocaust. When you think about it at the time, like the limited opportunities that women had in the world, like a you know, access to resources or positions of power to be able to even save anybody. I mean, back then, women were mostly at home. They couldn't get around easily. They're taking care of their own children, didn't know how to work the system, probably, as well as men who were, you know, in more powerful positions. Women were also taught not to question authority as much as men and to be obedient. And nonetheless, the majority of people who stood up against the Nazi genocide machine who had like the moral clarity to do that on their own were women. And there are so many stories, but there's one that kind of jumped out at me when reading the story about Rahab. It's a crazy story about Diet Eman, who was a, a Dutch woman who made an entire underground uh, to save Jews. And she uh, was a Christian woman. And she would tell later on that it was very hard for her to lie because she made all these false papers and the Nazis would ask her questions and she had to lie. And she was like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? You know, a, a Bible-believing person doesn't lie. And she says she drew inspiration from the story of Rahab, of Rahab, that was able to lie to the king's messengers. And she said every time it was hard for her to do this, she would like have this image of Rahab saving the Jewish spies. And like that inspired her to do what she did. So I want to study this story together. It's such a powerful story. You know, it inspired people throughout the generations. And I want to look at these verses together and meditate upon them a little bit to try to, you know, tease out the lessons that we can learn from this biblical passage for our lives, like how to be Rahabs in our own lives and how what does that mean for us? So just to recap, of course, Joshua sends out two spies to see what the atmosphere is like in the land. The Jerichoans get wind of this and, uh, you know, they understand that the spies have been to Rahab and they send officers looking and she, you know, hides them and sends them off, sends the officers off in the wrong direction. And they say, why did you help us? Because I've heard the miracles that God did for you. I know that no one's going to be able to stand up against you. And then she asks to please save her family. And she, you know, they decide she's going to drop the red string out of the window and be saved. And the rest of Jericho would be destroyed. And the Midrash later tells us that Rahab joined the Jewish people, married Joshua, and they had prophets descend from them. So it's a really powerful message. And there are a few really powerful messages I think that we can draw from this story. First of all, it's interesting to notice that in the book of Joshua, not many people are actually named, besides for Joshua, of course, whose name is in the title, but besides for him, and he's the main character, but besides for him, everyone else, most of the other people are actually kind of nameless. The spies are just called spies. The king is just called king. And when you compare it back to the five books of the Torah, names are constantly being listed. We have the book of Exodus, which in Hebrew is called Shemot, the book of names. And when Moshe sent out the 12 spies in our, you know, portion from uh, this past week, it said their father's lineage, their, you know, their whole, uh, you know, like forefathers and all of their jobs and their tribes. And here the spies are not named at all. Who is named in the book of Joshua? What we have in the book of Joshua is Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerach, of the tribe of Judah. Okay, that sounds like the Torah, right? Listing his entire lineage and name. 
who took the consecrated things. And it says the anger of Hashem was kindled against the children of Israel because of him. So in the beginning of the entry into the land, we have the name of Achan and the name of Rachav. And this is such a powerful lesson because it doesn't matter where you come from. You can be a Rachav or you can be an Achan. This is like the first lesson Hashem wants to give us when we come into the land. Hashem knows your heart. Rachav was literally at the lowest status that you could imagine. The least likely heroine essentially becomes the first lady. She was a no one who becomes the biblical heroine. Achan, on the other hand, had this amazing lineage and honor and great name. He could have been anything. In the book of Chronicles, his name actually appears as Ocher, which Ocher, which means like a troublemaker, something that contaminates. So the greatest, most honored person can fall into temptation if he doesn't follow Hashem's will, but his own selfishness. Whereas Rahab, who was a nobody, was able to create this great name and lineage for herself by being obedient to what she knows Hashem's will is. And so it's like the book of Joshua is trying to draw our attention to this when we enter the land. There's only two names there. You can be an Achan or you can be a Rahab. The other thing that we can look at is her action itself. What is so special about Rahab? Like, she had this one great moment, her 15 minutes of fame, but wasn't her life sort of a disgrace? Like, if you look at the grand picture... She spent her entire life sinning and now she's a great hero and role model because of this one thing. And the simple answer is, yeah, I think that's what makes her so special. She's the ultimate example of someone turning their life around no matter where they are. And you can dedicate your life to Hashem no matter how low you're starting out. The Bible didn't find us a medium level character to save these spies, but a girl at the bottom of the moral totem pole. She's not just at the moral rock bottom. Obviously, the people she associates with are not very high-quality friends. So she's just like at the bottom of the social group, right? And she doesn't have a normal family life. Uh, when she asks to save her family, she says, please save my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers. So she doesn't say husband and children. So she has no normal family. Like everything in her life is a mess. But upon meeting these two righteous Israelites, some kind of spark was ignited in Rahab's soul. She was inspired to turn her life around and perform the highest tshuva, the highest repentance possible because she risked her life, her own life to save Jews from the king of Jericho. And she explained the reason. She goes, I know that Hashem has given you the land. And what motivated Rahab, who's a harlot, to such amazing tshuva? She tells us, she was hearing the miracles that Hashem performed for Israel that inspired her, but a lot of people heard. She even says, we've all heard. She says, everyone in Jericho knows about this. Why did they all act the same? They heard, but how did they respond? They didn't make peace with Hashem's will. They're going after these spies with everything they had to try to fight the inevitable. Rahab heard the same news channels that they did, but her internal response was different. She had a humble heart. She says, I want to align myself with Hashem's plan, not go against Hashem's plan. It reminds me of like how many people heard about the Six-Day War, Hashem's salvation of Israel, like the fulfillment of so many prophecies, but what do they do? They don't want to change their worldview. My worldview is that Israel has been replaced, or my worldview is, you know, this can't be real. There's, there, you know, miracles don't happen. And there's a small minority who tries to honestly look at what is happening, to look at reality and align with Hashem's will instead of struggling against it. The people of Jericho, they were afraid and trembling, it says, but hearing that, that fear did not motivate them to any kind of personal commitment or action, just to try to double down on their rebelliousness. But Rahab is the only one who puts herself out on the line. And in response to her intense desire to align with Hashem's will, she is actually, she and her family are the only people that are saved out of the entire city. So, and you know, what's even more interesting is how she then turns her life around. The sages teach us that the highest form of repenting is by using and elevating the actual tools or the actual methods that were employed in the previous sin. So for example, let's say you used to cook not kosher food for a living, right? Or you would cook meat and milk together uh, for some kind of decadent fancy restaurant. 
The highest form of repentance would be to take those same cooking skills and learn how to cook kosher food for holy events, like for Shabbat or for weddings, right? That kind of tshuva transforms the previous sins into merits. It's not just leaving that behind. It's using it and elevating it. So, you know, uh, you know, Rahav, when she saves the Jewish spies, it says she let them down the rope through the window in, in Joshua, uh, in the second chapter in verse 15. And Rashi explains, he has such a beautiful explanation. He says that it was through this rope that the adulterers used to come to visit Rahav as a harlot. And she, the Midrash says, she said, Master of the universe, through this rope I've sinned. Through this, please forgive me. Through this rope, I had my escapades, which with this very tool of sin, I'm going to risk my life and let down these two Jewish spies. So Rahav teaches us that human beings can use the exact tools of our failures to actually come closer to Hashem and not only become closer to Hashem, to become like the elite of the Jewish people, of, of, of the, the elite of the righteous people. She became the first lady married to Joshua and had prophets descend from her. So we have such an amazing model in Rahab for all of us in our own lives. Somebody who it doesn't matter where, you know, where she came from or how she started out, she was willing to go against perhaps the grain of what was accepted in her society and really try to hear, look at reality and see Hashem's will. What is Hashem calling me to do? How can I align myself with what Hashem is showing me that his his you know, destiny is for the world, how can I be part of that? And not to push back against it. Even if most people are pushing back against it, how can I try to you know, go with the will of Hashem? And she does that so courageously. And she doesn't just deny her past you know, misbehavior, but she uses everything that happened to her so faithfully, understanding that everything that happened to her, even the sins... She can harness that strength, use that life experience, and lift it up for good. So she's a real inspiration to us. In some way, we all draw strength from Rahab. Bye, guys. Have a great week. Yeah, I never thought about Rahab like that. You know, and even I've been so immersed in this Torah portion that to contrast her with the spies, it shows where their faith lacked is exactly where she had faith, right? Like Tehillah said, because... She believed in the power of self-transformation, in the power of tshuva, which the spies did not. Obviously didn't believe it, at least to the degree that she did, to the degree that it's true. Because, you know, they look, I, what they, people say is that the spies look back, and yes, they saw the great miracles that Hashem performed for them, right? The, the plagues and the exodus from Egypt and bringing down the global superpower and the giving of the Torah. But they also saw the rebellions and the complaining and the golden calf. You know, the golden, that's a big sin. That's a big deal. And they didn't really believe that Hashem could still love them. They didn't think that Hashem was still with them. And, uh, and maybe it seemed that they were projecting their own human conditional love onto Hashem, whose love for us is greater than we could ever imagine. And Rahab got it. She understood what the spies didn't, was that transformation is possible in Tehillah. That is awesome. I never even thought of that Rahab story in that capacity at all. That is super impressive. The thing that I really liked about it that I never thought of before was the parallels between the righteous among the nations, the Hasidim Motalam that hid Jews in the Holocaust and how most of them were women. That's just remarkable. And that how was God's will fulfilled there by like 
the most simple of people. Because sometimes, Ari, I look at you and I'm like, wow, you're a simple guy. And I look at myself, I'm like, okay, we're simple. We're simple people. And yet still it is like Hashem chooses the simple people to just do his will. Just the simple people with simple faith. We're not doctors or scholars or big important people, but just husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. And the lowest of the low, as far as Rahab's profession is concerned. And it was like, she was the one that saved Israel. And how awesome that is that if you even from like the time is like the blueprint is set in motion. The people that are going to save Israel, the people that are going to make a difference in building the country, building the kingdom are going to be simple people with simple faith that are just they're committed to doing good. And that's really awesome. Okay, can you guys hear Can you hear me right now? Oy vavoy, what a weird thing that just happened. Okay, thumbs up. I'm going to trust that, that all's good. Anyways, um, yes, that is beautiful. And Jeremy, don't try to out-simple me, okay? Because I'm definitely more simple than you. I've seen your bio. You're like a war hero and the start of the farm. Do you know my entire bio is when people ask me for my bio? It says, Arya Bramowitz is a simple Jew, period. And they're like, no, we really want your bio. I'm like, that is really my bio. That is really all I have to say. Arya Bramowitz is a simple Jew. Is that true, Jeremy? It's true. So I'm much more simple than you could ever be. Anyways, um, so, uh, okay, so let's dive in. We're running out of time. And there are things that I want to share about this portion. I hope it's, uh, you know, uh, articulate. I hope I'm able to express it. But there's, so there's, let's just start at the beginning. Okay, shlach lecha anashim. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, send forth men, if you please, and let them spy out the land of Canaan that I give to the children of Israel. One man from uh, one man each from his father's tribe shall you send, every one a leader among them. So there's a lot of debate around all of this, right? Like main question here, why did Moses send the spies? Why did he do that to begin with? Because it's clear, now it's clear from the 21st verse of the first chapter of Deuteronomy of Dvarim, What's less clear in our verses here, it explains it more there, which is the exact order of how all this played out. Right? Sending the spies was the people's idea. It was the nation's idea, period. They were scared. They wanted reassurance. And we learned that Moshe thought that you know, his quick and unflinching agreement to their request would convey a type of confidence that would dissuade the people from sending uh, spies to begin with. You know, like, let's say you want to buy my car and I say, Take it, take it to your mechanic, any mechanic, you, the, be, the best mechanic you can find, wherever you want, take it, you're going to get the same result, which is that this is a great vehicle. And by saying that, I'm hoping to save all the time involved in the check in the hopes that you'll just see my authentic confidence and say, you know what, good enough for me. This guy seems confident, let's just do the deal. That's what Moshe hoped, that they'd be like, he's so willing to send in the spies, fine. But that's not what he got. The people moved forward with full force with their desire to enter the land. And despite the knowledge that God and Moshe both had, of course Hashem had it, but Moshe had it also, as we actually see in the verse itself, of how all this would turn out, nonetheless, they sent the spies because it was the will of the people. Uh, uh, and, uh, and Hashem wants to give us free will. You know, he leads us on the way that we want to go, and that's what the nation wanted. And so spies were sent. And actually, my friend uh, Rav Micha Hyman, he says that the real sin actually happened right there at that moment 
at the moment of the request, not when they went into the land or when they returned, the sin was their initial desire to send the spies at all. Because if Hashem says that it's a good land, that it's a land of milk and honey, a desirable land, then that should be more than enough for us. If Hashem tells us something's good, then it's good. No further inquiry is necessary. And they wanted further inquiry. And so right there, we already see, I think, the seeds of the greatest downfall right there. And the fact that the people needed this inquiry and this investigation tells us perhaps everything we need to know about their level of faith and trust in Hashem. And it shows us that perhaps their punishment of wandering in the desert for 40 years wasn't necessarily really a punishment at all, right? It was clear that they needed that journey. Their sin just exposed what was, the reality what was. It exposed it to themselves. It exposed it to Hashem. Their sin exposed the truth that while the Israelites had been taken out of slavery, that the slavery had not been taken from within the Israelites. And, and we'll read, you know, you know, as a slave comes to, as a slave comes to embrace all of the decisions that are made for you and everything that's provided for you, the life of a slave, there's something I remember in the army also. There's a certain, there's a, a month-long class that they give you, course that they give you about how to adjust to post-army life because people get so used to and addicted to having every single decision being made for them. That's the life of a slave. And, and at this moment, the nation of Israel exposed that they simply were not ready for the great spiritual challenges that true freedom offers. But we'll get to that soon. Now let's get back to the text, right? So Moshe sends anashim that are called distinguished men. Distinguished men, one from each tribe. The sages say that the reason for this was that, um, that if they do, God forbid, come back with a false report, even just a negative, fearful report, that the blame would be evenly divided, right? Or at least clearly divided among the tribes so that when the dust settles and the unimaginable historic magnitude of their sin is clear as day for all to see, the nation as a whole will justifiably share the blame together. So it was hopefully to prevent infighting with the inevitable downfall that Moshe saw coming. Anyways, these distinguished men, right, their names are all written there in verses 4 to 15. And these great men embarked on their mission as anashim, right, as truly righteous men. But that's not how they returned. For while all of them could have been remembered as Caleb and Joshua were remembered, instead they were remembered as the 10 spies who brought back the evil report. 10 of the greatest men in Jewish history committed one of the greatest sins in Jewish history. Now, how could such a thing happen? That's what I want to talk about. Because I think that there's one seemingly small detail which contains within it the secret of how such great men could possibly have fallen so low. And that seemingly small detail is the order in which their names were listed. Has anybody encountered this idea before? The idea of the order of their names? Because while that may seem sort of irrelevant, it would only be irrelevant if the Torah was written by a person, God forbid. But being that it was written by the by Hashem, with the uppermost divine wisdom imaginable, something like the order of the names has profound meaning to it. And looking within that for, uh, for understanding, that, well, that's a worthwhile endeavor because we see that their names were not listed 
in order of the ages of the tribes, nor was it based on their positions in the camp or anything clear to us. And by the way, these you know, emissaries turned spies were not the Nasi'im. They were not the princes. I used to think that they were actually the princes because I wasn't reading carefully, but it wasn't the princes of the tribes as we would have expected. The names listed were the names of the greatest spiritual leaders, the greatest spiritual luminaries in each tribe. And they were listed in order of their spiritual greatness, with the greatest obviously being Shamua, son of Zahur of the tribe of Reuven, which is listed first. So this is like the dream team of spiritual greats among the nation of Israel. And where did Caleb and Joshua rank? You ready for this? You could just look in the text and see it yourselves. They were not ranked numbers one and two as we would have thought. No. Caleb ranked third and Joshua was, was ranked fifth. That's right. Caleb was number three and Joshua was number five. And I spent a lot of Shabbat reflecting on exactly that. I discussed it with Jeremy a lot. If they were not the greatest spiritually of this group, then what was it about them that made them who they were? What was it about them that allowed them to pass this test with flying colors and merit to be the only ones that are able to enter the Holy Land? Because again, if it's not about spiritual standing, then what is it all about? So Rav Biederman brings a teaching that the distinguishing factor that differentiated Caleb and Joshua from the other 10 emissaries turned spies was the, their degree of humility. Right? They were the most aware that no matter how spiritually evolved they may be, without Hashem's help and without praying to Hashem and asking for that help, they will fail. The other spies, they may have been humble. I'm sure that they were. But I think they got confused. They, they knew their greatness, and they were just honest about that. Part of humility is being able to see your strengths and your greatness, and they knew their greatness, and they must have determined that this test was a test that they could pass on their own, right? That they didn't need to turn to Hashem for this one. But Joshua and Caleb knew that without turning to Hashem, they had no chance. We see actually where it happened with Joshua, that the whole prayer idea came in here, right? It was the very next verse after the list, listing of the spies. We read, These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Joshua, Yoshua. So Moshe added the letter Yud to Hoshea's name, which started with a hey so that the name would start with Yud and Hey, which spells out God's name, thereby changing his name to Yehoshua, meaning God will save. In order to protect him, as Rashi tells us, from falling victim to the sin of the spies. So Moses was blessing him with this name in order to protect him from the sin that he knew was coming up. So it's taught that Moshe saw his disciples yeah, you know, Joshua, like he had many disciples, but his primary disciple was Joshua. And he saw Joshua's extreme humility. And he feared that this could cause him to nullify himself to such a degree that he may not have stood up defiantly to the other spies out of reverence and respect for their greatness. Moshe realized that he needed this extra boost, this extra strength, this extra blessing of a new name. And, um, you know, the, the truth is that there, there was also more on the line, really, with Joshua, being that he was Moshe's primary disciple. And so if he failed and thereby displayed a lack of faith, the nation could deduce that it was 
a reflection of Moshe's spiritual failing and lack of faith and shortcomings, which could cause the nation to doubt Moshe himself and therefore to doubt the Torah and therefore to doubt Hashem. So there was a lot on the line there, right, with Joshua. And uh, Joshua needed the spiritual fortification, which he got with his new name, which we're told every time he reflected on his name, it strengthened him and it fortified him because God's name was tied into his name itself, thanks to Moshe. Anyways, but Caleb, Caleb, he was exceedingly humble too. And in some ways he overcame more than Joshua did because he didn't get a name change or benefit of Moshe's blessing. In chapter 13, verse 22, we actually see that the spies ascended from the south into the land. Right, here's the, the verse. They ascended from the south and he arrived at Hebron where there was Shimon and Shishai and Talmai, the offspring of the great giants. Now let's read that carefully. They ascended from the south and he arrived at Hebron. Right, the verse starts with the plural, they, referring to all of the spies, but then switches to he to refer, not, to refer only to Caleb who were taught he went off by himself into Hebron to the holy Machpelah cave, where we know the forefathers and foremothers are all buried, to pray to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there. Not to pray to them, but through them in their merits, to be strengthened by them in, in order to overcome the test of the spies that laid before him. And as we see in Joshua chapter 14, it was exactly because of Caleb's special connection with Hebron Right, Hebron actually means from Chibur, Hebron Chibur, which means connection. Then Caleb strengthened his connection with the forefathers, strengthened his connection with their, the God of his forefathers by going to Hebron and praying there. And that is why he got that land as an, as an inheritance. So Caleb and Joshua humbled themselves and prayed to Hashem for help. Now the other 10 spies did not. But nonetheless, I really believe that deep down, the inner souls of each of those 10 lofty men were screaming, no, don't do this. Don't sin against Hashem. Their souls were screaming it. Deep down, they knew, but their ears couldn't hear the cries of their souls. I, I can only uh, postulate about this because I felt it myself. I've seen it. I think we've all had moments in our lives where we, where we deceive ourselves. And deep down, we know it but we simply can't hear the begging and pleading and protest of our very own souls. We cover our ears and drown out that voice uh, with, with our own desires and our own excuses and our own justifications and our own intellectual gymnastics and acrobatics, right? We don't have uh, the courage necessarily or the humility to, to see the truth for what it is. And instead we give into the illusions and the temptations that seductively call us to violate Hashem's will. Does that resonate with any of you? Do you feel like you've ever done such a thing? Okay, that's a lot of you. And so, so, so the question here that I want to sort of pivot to here, what was the great temptation? What exactly was so enticing, so compelling, so convincing that the 10 greatest spiritual leaders possibly in Jewish history failed so epically? What was it about the, this challenge that even the greatest Caleb and Joshua needed power and strength beyond themselves to withstand it. And I want to hear from you afterwards if I don't touch it, because something in what I'm about to share with you, I feel like I didn't nail it all. I got some of it, but there's something that's, that in me that says there's, there's still what to complete the ideas that I'm sharing now. But anyways, 
let's keep in mind here that Hashem created the world with this set of balances, right? When the, the desire for idolatry was so great that the nation couldn't overcome it. So then the sages of Israel begged and prayed for that desire for idolatry to be banished. And at that same time, we lost the ability for prophecy. Idolatry and prophecy were balancing each other. So we lose one, we lose the other. There's, there's sort of a, a balance here. And the unparalleled historic potential of this moment, right? A moment in which the fate of Israel lies in the balance, right? Our sages teach that if they had entered Israel then with Moses leading them, they would have never been exiled. They would have built the temple and ushered in the messianic era. So there's a lot on the line, right? It was a moment of, of potential redemption, enormous redemption, that clearly, of course, there would be unimaginable levels of opposition and resistance and confusion. I see what we're doing here on this mountain. It's a great thing that we're doing. Not great to that degree, but it's a great thing. And the level of, of resistance and, and uh, opposition and confusion we face is immense. Anyways, so when the spies departed from their, you know, their desert cocoon, and they entered the land of Israel, they were going on a much more than a mere geographical journey. They were going on a journey to an entirely different spiritual dimension. They were coming from a dimension of existence in which the miraculous was nature, right? From the man of the aid from heaven to the divine revelations, the pillars of smoke and the fire that was leading them for them, that was their life. And they were entering into a world in which the natural order appears to reign supreme, a world in which the divinity that was for them irrefutable, undeniable daily experience of the divinity of Hashem in their lives, that same divinity would be hidden and masked beyond recognition. They were going from a world of daily miracles to a world in which the natural order reigns supreme. It was like survival of the fittest. Because think about it, in the desert, they were living as, as, as part people, part angels. Right? There was an element of such revealed divinity in the desert that it's hard for us in our world and our lives to even imagine what life was like for them. But when they enter the land of Israel, the reality of the physical world congealed and the laws of nature became even more all-encompassing and persuasive in their appearance of just being self-perpetuated. Right? Nature seemed to just exist on its own, devoid of any divine godly involvement. It was, it was a foreign world to them that they didn't understand and which they must have found absolutely terrifying. You know, I, I think it was almost like this, I think, right? For them, in their desert existence, Hashem was on the outside of them, right? They were, they were the object of his protection. They were the beneficiaries of his miracles. God redeemed them and he sanctified them and he sheltered them. But no matter how they looked at it, sort of God was out there and acting upon them. What they didn't realize was that when they entered the land, Hashem would not be abandoning them. I think they, they feared that he would be abandoning them, that they weren't worthy or that's the way the world works. Or They thought that he would be deserting them. But they didn't understand that he wouldn't be leaving them to their own devices and their own capabilities. Survival of the fittest in their war against the giants, how would that have turned out? You know, if, if he did leave them to their own devices and capabilities, well, you could totally understand their terror at the sheer size and strength of the inhabitants of the land, right? According to the natural order, they would have zero chance of victory, of survival, of surviving even one moment. 
in that war. But what they didn't realize was that when they entered the land, Hashem would not be performing miracles upon them. No, he would be performing miracles through them. And I think that they simply did not believe that after all of their failings and all of their rebellions, that Hashem loved them enough to still be with them. And even if he would still be with them, they couldn't, I don't think they could fathom the reality that he would manifest himself into the world through them. It was all just too much for them to wrap their minds around. What they saw with their eyes in the land, the giants and the fruit and everything else, it was just too compelling and too real for them. They just couldn't imagine a way that such a conquest could even be possible. After all, you know, upon entry to the land, they would just be normal people. It's like crypto, uh, Superman holding a bar of kryptonite. They wouldn't have a chance. And that was their greatest error, that they insisted on understanding something that they weren't supposed to understand. What Hashem sought from them, I believe that what Hashem sought from them was to follow him into the land of Israel as they followed him into the desert, right? As a bride following him into the wilderness in a land not sown, right? As we read in the book of Jeremiah. That's how he wanted them to follow him out of the desert and into the land of Israel with that same faith, with even more faith, because the land of Israel was and is a land of faith. And it was only with that pure, simple faith that they would have been able to conquer the land. Sometimes we aren't supposed to understand things yet. Sometimes not understanding things is the whole idea. Not understanding things is the whole idea. In the past, we've spoken about the rather famous and seemingly fundamental mistake that the spies made when they returned to the nation and they sowed their message of doubt and fear. Part of me thinks I should skip this, but I think it's important that we touch on this again because we spoke about it last year. They shared their fear and their doubts. What did they say? They say, there we saw the Nephilim the sons of the giant from among the Nephilim. We were like grasshoppers in our eyes, and so were we in theirs. Now, we could take a deep dive into this verse, but you can listen to the past fellowships for that. Tabitha is posting the past fellowships in the future. On the Wednesday before the coming Shabbat, she will post the past fellowships so we can be up on those. But you know, you don't need to take a deep dive into the verse to see the fundamental error in their thinking. Okay, so you feel small. I get it. Fine. I get it. You feel small. But how do you have any idea how they perceive you? As a matter of fact, we see that in just a couple of weeks in the Torah portion of Balak, the king of Moab named Balak, he tells Bil'am, the sorcerer, how terrified the inhabitants of the land are of the invading Israelites. And they perceive the Israelites as like an ox that is goring and consuming everything in their path. So they were scared. But, but there's a famous teaching that says, and I'm not sure that I encountered it before my studies of this year, but that says that the spies actually did overhear the giants saying that they seemed like grasshoppers in their eyes, which at first glance, glance would really seem to change everything, right? Because if that's true, if they did overhear the giants saying that, then they weren't projecting their low self-esteem as we thought that they were. It actually was a reality. The giants actually did see them as grasshoppers. But uh, the famous Rabbi Schiffman points out that whether they heard the giants say that or not, whether they were just projecting it or not, it doesn't really change things all that much. Right In the first scenario where they did not overhear and they were just speculating and projecting their own low self-image, 
They were allowing that low self-image to distort how they thought others perceived them. Whereas in the second scenario in which they actually did overhear the giants calling them grasshoppers, they would, they would be letting how others actually do perceive them to distort their own self-perception. Meaning that even if these giant Nephilim really did see them as grasshoppers, despise these great men, they should have had the faith and the strength and the trust. And like, like Jeremy said, in the Devekutba Matara, the mission focus so locked in their sights that it shouldn't matter. It should not have made any difference what was thought of them one way or the other. Right? We, this is probably the most famous verses that I do in my fellowships. It always comes back to that. But think about it. Did David let the mocking words of Goliath taunting him, calling him a little boy, affect his perception of himself? No. He knew who he was. He knew who Hashem is. And he knew what his mission was. And there is literally nothing that anyone or anyone could say or do that would change his mind. Let's look at it inside, right? When the Philistine cut side of David, he scorned him, right? He mocked him, for he was but a boy, ruddy and handsome. And the Philistine called out to David, am I a dog? You come against me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Now, you didn't hear David saying, but he thinks I'm just a boy and, and I'm just a harmless stick. And, and, and I'm so scared. No, David was so enraged at the desecration of God's name that he replied, you come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the ranks of Israel, whom you have defied. That should have been the response of the spies. But, you know, Jeremy always would say that, um, that we're going to have fear in this world. But it's up to us to determine whether that fear will be fear of man or fear of Hashem, right? King David says in Psalm Shiviti Hashem Negdi Tamid, which we've translated before as Hashem should always be opposite with me, like stand right across from me, he should always be across from me. But as we've discussed, it also comes from Lashon Shaveh. Shiviti comes from Shaveh, which is equal, that everything should be equal before me. The Canaanites think that we're grasshoppers or they're so terrified of us. It, it shouldn't make a difference at all, because in the end of the day, compared to Hashem, our human minds are so feeble that we don't even know what's good or bad to begin with. All the time, people are saying, how's things going at the farm? And I never know how to answer, because if things appear to be bad, I just don't believe that they're bad. I believe that they're good, but then I say they're good, but they're not actually good in a revealed way. But we don't know what's good or bad, right? Case in point, the great sage the Khatam Sofer, and I've never heard this before, but he teaches that indeed the giants did see the spies and they did perceive them as grasshoppers. And the spies overheard that. And this, actually, it was this that brought those giants to their knees in terror. Because when they initially heard that the Israelites were liberated from Egypt, it didn't frighten them because they perceived themselves as stronger than the Egyptians by a large margin. They weren't afraid because, okay, they're better than the Egyptians and maybe the Israelites succeeded, but they'll beat the Israelites. But when they saw the size of the Israelites, that they were so tiny, only then did they realize that the most powerful God must be fighting their battles for them. And they therefore did not have a chance. So how's that? They did say it. 
but it was because of their small size, because of their small size, that the Canaanite giants were afraid. Rav Biederman actually quotes a Midrash that says that Hashem forgave the spies for saying that they felt like grasshoppers. Okay. But he didn't forgive them for saying, and that is how they perceived us. Hashem said to them in this Midrash, how do you know how I had them think of you? How do you know how I had them think of you? Perhaps they thought you were malachim, princes, or even um, uh, angels. The point is that Hashem controls everything, even how people perceive us, think of us, how they feel about us, if we find favor in people's eyes or not. That is in Hashem's hands, ultimately. And there are many opinions regarding why the spies made the horrific mistake that they did, but they all converge on one underlying cause. They lacked faith. They were seduced by their eyes, and they totally believed in the illusions and the lies of this world, which is why we spoke about this last week. The portion ends with the commandment of tzitzit. Let's look inside, chapter 15, verse 38. Speak to the Israelite people and instruct them to make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout the ages. Let them attach a cord of blue to the fringe at each corner. I wear it every day. So does Jeremy. Jews in Judea, this is where we wear every single day the blue fringes. That shall be your fringe. Look at it and recall all the commandments of Hashem and observe them so that you do not stray after your heart and your eyes. Thus shall you be, be reminded to observe all my commandments and to be holy to your God. Hashem tells us right there, don't believe your eyes. Believe in me. You don't need to understand how or why. You don't need to get it. Just believe in me. Trust me. It all boils down to emunah. It all boils down to faith in Hashem. If when we cover our eyes every morning and every night, and we really believe what we're saying, when we pronounce Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If we really believe that, then we know that everything in this world is a manifestation of the one true God of Israel, and there's no reason to fear at all. And if he's good, then everything that he does is good. What we seek, you know, what, what he seeks from us isn't intellect or strength. It's faith in its purest and simplest form. And the land of Israel is the land of faith. It's only in the land of Israel that we can actually accomplish our mission of being living embodiments, national living embodiments of faith in Hashem. It is the land that, uh, that his eyes are upon from the beginning of the year till the year's end. Right? The land represents walking before him in faith. And therefore, if this is the land that he loves, then this is the land that we love. And this is the land that we will praise and sing its praises. And the more the world bashes Israel, the more we will defend it and love it with all of our hearts. And so I want to bless us, my friends, that, that we have the faith and the trust in Hashem to know that there is nothing, nothing that is impossible that we can overcome any threat that will ever face us. If only we remember that no matter how many times we've fallen, Hashem still loves us in a way that we can't understand. We need to remember, I bless us that we remember, that we can overcome any adversary, no matter how monstrous and giant they may seem, as long as we maintain the humility to remember that on our own, we can accomplish nothing. But with humble prayers to Hashem, there's nothing that we can't do. And I want to take this opportunity now before going to the fellowship connection. And if you have something to share, to say, 
raise that hand, uh, the little hand that you clicked there. But I want to take this opportunity, my favorite opportunity, to bless you in a different way that Moses blessed Joshua. This is more the way that Aaron blesses the nation of Israel. And although, of course, you know, I'm not a Kohen, I'm not a descendant of Aaron, I am a member of the nation of Israel. And we're, we're instructed to be a nation of priests. And so it is my great honor to bless all of you. May Hashem bless you and keep you. May Hashem make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Hashem lift his face up to you and give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.